this evening by reading from the 137th Psalm, uh, beginning in verse number 1. The psalmist writes, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing in a foreign land? We talked this morning about the art of encouragement, and tonight we want to flip that around and talk about the problem of discouragement. Discouragement is one of the most persistent and one of the most deadly enemies of every person, of every worthwhile cause. Discouragement causes people to believe that success is impossible. It makes us believe that we simply can't do it. And when a person believes that they're going to fail, inevitably, they do. Some of us, we know, are more prone to discouragement than others, but all of us feel it from time to time. And it's in those times that Scripture can offer us, I think, comfort. We can discover men and women of God who, despite all of their achievements, despite their faith, suffered through some of the same things that we do. When we're talking about discouragement, we can see men and women who were discouraged too. People who encountered the same problems that we faced, people who had the same struggles that we endure. And maybe the most obvious example, if we're talking discouragement, is the prophet Elijah. We've been looking at some of these stories from the books of Samuel and Kings over the last several weeks. We know, because we've looked at Elijah and at Ahab and Jezebel the last couple of weeks, that the life of Elijah can maybe best be described as an ongoing war with Ahab and Jezebel. And you remember that Jezebel was originally from Tyre. She was a Phoenician princess. And when she came to Israel, she tried to introduce the worship of her chief god, Baal, in opposition to the worship of the one true God. She was clever. She was ruthless. She was wicked. She was powerful. We looked a couple of weeks ago at this battle Elijah has with those prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He wins this great victory. But then right after that, 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah becomes so discouraged that he flees, first of all, down to Beersheba in the far south of Israel. And then finally, he goes all the way down to Mount Horeb in the Sinai Desert. And the story is told to us here, 1 Kings 19. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, this is verse 2, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. He's talking about those hundreds of prophets of Baal that were killed. And then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree 
and he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Elijah was fed under the tree there. And it tells us then in verse number 8 that he arose and ate and drank, and he went on the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And now they seek my life to take it away. Could skip down a bit. God has a discourse with him. In verse 15, the Lord says to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And he gives him instructions. He gives him work to do there. And in verse 18, the Lord says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah is an example of deep discouragement. And he's an unexpected example because this is just in the aftermath of his greatest victory. This follows immediately on that story we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that battle with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And he's won this great victory, and God has proved that he's the one true God by consuming the sacrifice and the altar and the water and all, and all of the prophets of Baal have been put to the sword. And we look at this and we think, how can he possibly, in the aftermath of this victory, feel so discouraged? He should have realized that God was on his side. He's just had a public demonstration of God's power and God's approval. He should have known that ultimately, as God's man, he'd be victorious. And yet even this great man, this great prophet of God, fell prey to discouragement. And of course, it's easy for us to throw rocks at him now, right? We're not in that situation. Oh, if I were there, I wouldn't have been discouraged like that. I would have trusted God, but... Elijah's enemies were powerful, and they were relentless. And Elijah was lonely. He had no wife. He had no family or friends that we see anywhere. He made this stand against evil, and it's heroic, but it was solitary. And so he felt all alone, I, even I only, am left to resist Baal. And so ultimately, at least here for a time, he gave up. His courage melted. He became discouraged. We see such a great man of God falling prey to discouragement. And we know we're not immune to those feelings ourselves. All of us feel that sometimes. And so for a few minutes this evening, I want us to just consider some of the situations in which we're likely to become discouraged. One of the most obvious situations is when everything around us is going wrong. For one thing, there are national problems. There are international problems. Uh, Brother Ward prayed this morning that we might live in a nation that was more godly. 
Well, it's easy to look around and feel like all of our society is against us as Christians sometimes, isn't it? To feel like we're in an age of materialism and increasing secularism and that the values of our society are increasingly opposed to ours. There's a spirit of unrest and rebellion and, and there's social and cultural and racial tensions that exist now and have been increasing here in recent years, maybe to a degree, a degree that we haven't seen since the, the 60s. And then not only that, there's ongoing wars. We've been constantly at war for years and years and years now. And in the midst of all of this, it's easy to feel that it's, it's just one problem after another. How can we possibly stay encouraged in the midst of such hostility? I think it's important for us to remember here that we're not unique in any way. This is just the way of the world. We can look at what the prophet Micah has to say, Micah chapter 7. You think we've got it bad. Our day is not nearly as hopeless as that described by the prophet Micah. Micah 7 verse 2. He says, The godly has perished from the earth, and there's no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desire of his soul, and thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Those are bad times. <laughs> we can take comfort from the fact that whatever we face, no matter how bad it gets, it's been faced by God's people before. They've come through it. But of course, sometimes the problems aren't just national, global, big, external in scope. Sometimes they're personal. Sometimes we have problems that hit close to home. And in each of our lives, there's going to be personal discouragement. It comes in a variety of ways. There's the inevitability of aging. That happens to all of us sooner or later. There's illness. There's bereavement. There are those personal goals and ambitions that we might have had, but at some point, they're unfulfilled and we have to file them away as unattainable. They're just not going to happen for us. And maybe sometimes we feel almost like David, 1 Samuel chapter 20, that there's but a step between me and death. It's in those moments when everything seems to be going wrong, these discouraging times, that we need to remember the most to look to God. We mentioned this morning Jesus' invitation, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Or we could think about Paul's statement in Romans. This has brought comfort to so many. Romans 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that good's the ultimate good, God's big picture good. It might not even happen in our lifetimes, but God's in control. It's going to work out. Or we can actually think 
from our text here in Micah 7. We were just reading from a moment ago, Micah laments how bad everything is. You can't even trust your own family. And yet he caps this all off by saying in verse 7, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. My God will hear me, Micah says, even in the midst of all of that evil and unrest. We need to remember that too. We're also likely to experience discouragement, second big category, when we experience some sort of personal failure. Maybe we lost our job. That's never happened to me, yet knock on wood. If it happens to me now, it happens to me because I lose it here. And uh, we, we all better hope that doesn't happen anytime soon. <laughs> Be bad for all concerned. But maybe you had to drop out of school. That's happened to me. I had to do it twice, in fact. Or maybe, maybe you had to give up some ambition that you had. That's happened to me, too. I had plans that I had that just not ever going to happen. And we could go on and on thinking of things like this. We've all failed at some point in our lives. And you know what? Odds are you're going to fail again at something. These failures in life stack up, and with each one of them comes the temptation to become discouraged. Consider here the facts of a case. You'll probably, some of you will probably recognize these. A young man ran for the state legislature in Illinois. He was badly defeated. And so he decided to enter into business. But his business failed. And he had to spend the next 17 years repaying the debt due to his failed business. He was in love with a the girl. They were engaged. But before they could be married, she died. He tried to go back into politics. He was elected to the state legislature finally, and then he decided he'd run for Congress. He was defeated badly. He ran again for Congress. This time he was elected, but he was so unpopular that he only served one term. He decided he'd run for Senate. He was defeated. And so then he decided maybe he'd get out of electoral politics for a time. He tried to get an appointment to the U.S. land office. He was refused that. Became a candidate for Senate, was beaten. He tried to get a nomination as vice president of the United States. He was barely even considered. He ran for Senate again and was defeated. Defeat after defeat after defeat, one failure after another, and each one of these great disappointments, and I don't know about you, each one of these would have been enough to make me want to give up, let alone all of them. Now, I've been told that uh, uh, Brother Rader is the most popular man in Liberty County and can get elected to any office, and I know he's been elected to more than one. I don't know if you've ever suffered a defeat or not, but if you'd ever suffered that many, you'd probably want to get out of politics, wouldn't you? Sure. But this man didn't quit, and some of you I've seen nodding have probably picked up on who this is. And just two years after that defeat for Senate, Abraham Lincoln was elected as President of the United States. Not only President, but then went on to become one of the most respected leaders in all of the history of the world, not just this country. What would have happened if Abraham Lincoln would have given up after one of those many early fiascos of failure? 
Or if you want a spiritual example, a Christian example, one that hits close to home, what about Saul of Tarsus? Now, Saul believed fervently that Christians were enemies of God, and so he thought it was his duty as God's man to go and to try to stamp out Christianity. He pursued them. He hunted Christians even to death. When he came to realize that he had been completely wrong, when he thought of all of those individuals, all of those families that he had ruined, destroyed, those lives that he'd taken because of his efforts, I can't imagine how that must have felt and how easy it would have been for him to give in to despair. But even though he'd made that one tragic mistake, he didn't make another. He closed the door on that past. That's effectively what he says. Philippians chapter 3, he faces the future with renewed determination. He says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and straining forward to what lies before, I press toward the goal, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I forget those things that are behind. He put it away. He threw it in the trash. That's our model. That's how we ought to act when we face any failure. Forget it. Throw it in the trash. Press on with that one singular goal, serving God. We sometimes become discouraged, third big category. When we face situations that are just beyond our power to remedy, when we feel weak and helpless, and there are those times when we we brood and we fret about things that we, we did and we wish we could undo, but we can't, or things that we wish we could change, but there's nothing we can do, or uh, the things we'd like to, to be able to do and are, are powerless to do them. I, I think of a, a good example here in Scripture is Thomas. You'll remember this story probably. It's in John chapter 11. Jesus had been pushed for a time out of Judea because the threat to his life was so great and he was beyond Jordan. And then he gets news that his friend Lazarus is sick. Then he's not only sick, but he actually dies. And Jesus says that he's going to go back and to see Lazarus' family because he passed. And all of the disciples are like, "Um, Lord, don't you remember that they were just trying to kill you over there in Judea? But Thomas, to his credit, he says, let's go also. Then he says that we may die with him. Now there's devotion, there's loyalty in that statement, but there's despair. There is discouragement. He sees death as an inevitability. And there's a better way than that. I I think here, and I have this written down at length because it's, such a great example, but this is from Jimmy Allen, who was a fantastic preacher, probably baptized more people than just about anyone else who ever lived, uh, at least in our era, and was a professor for many years at Harding. He says, I am completely inadequate and incapable to live each day without divine help. By living, I mean meeting the day-to-day problems which arise. The tensions of life can be overpowering for man's own unaided ability. It's easy to become depressed. Discouragement is familiar to most of us. 
Recently, a friend asked me to list a few of my favorite biblical statements. The one that has meant more to me than any other is Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things in him that strengtheneth me. I've repeated these words in preparing to preach to large audiences in some of our major campaigns, in planning to teach college Bible classes, in striving to be a Christian husband and father, and in the constant battle to bring my flesh into subjection to the will of God. In the present operative power of Christ, I can do all things expected of me by the Father. What a tremendous reality. I love the way that ends. In the present operative power of Christ, I can do everything expected of me by the Father. See, what we have to remember is when we feel weak and helpless, ultimately we're always weak and helpless. We can't really accomplish anything on our own. We need always to rely on God and remember that we can accomplish it through Him. He strengthens us. It's not in ourselves. And that brings us to the last big category we want to mention tonight. We can be prone to become discouraged when we're alone. I think a good example here is in Acts chapter 17. It's not stated explicitly, but you sort of get it putting things together and, and reading between the lines. This is Paul in the city of Athens. And if you notice, Paul, unlike most of his stops, is all alone when he goes into Athens. His traveling companions, Silas and Timothy, were left behind in Berea. And he goes there and he walks around and he sees all of the idols there and he goes to the Areopagus, to Mars Hill, and he addresses those Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. You remember the result. Some of them wanted to hear him again. Most of them laughed. He made a couple of converts, but what's notable is we don't have any record of a real church being established there or of Paul going back and visiting it ever again. And I can't say it for certain, but I think his lack of success, the fact that he was all alone factored into that. You see, in contrast to that, he goes on in chapter 18 to Corinth. He not only meets Aquila and Priscilla there, but pretty soon he sends for Silas and Timothy to come on there, and you know all the success he had in Corinth. He stayed for a year and a half, goes back to visit repeatedly, writes a couple of letters there. I think later on in Acts, we even see something of that apprehensiveness when he approaches the city of Rome. Paul was brought there, you remember, as a, as a prisoner. He's accompanied by a few friends, but obviously it's not under ideal circumstances, to say the least. But Luke actually writes in chapter 28, there suddenly appear several brethren from the city of Rome coming out to meet him. And Luke writes about that meeting in verse number 15. He says, from there the brothers when they heard of us, came to meet us as far as the market of Appius and the three taverns. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. You see, that reminds us, even someone as great, someone as faithful as the Apostle Paul could become discouraged. He needed to be strengthened. He needed to be encouraged. But it's not just Paul. In the final hours of his life, Jesus felt this same loneliness. 
as if he was facing the world alone. John's account of his time in the Garden of Gethsemane contains these words. John 16, verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed is come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone because the Father is with me. And that's the note we want to emphasize this evening. Even when we feel all alone, even when maybe we are physically alone, whether it's in old age or whether it's because work has carried us to some far-flung place or, or maybe it's because you just moved somewhere and you haven't really settled in where it feels like home yet, you're never really all alone. God's always with you. It's one of Jesus' greatest promises towards the end of his life. Matthew 28, verse 20, I am with you always, he says, even to the end of the age. That's the sustaining power, the promise that we have when we're tempted to become discouraged. We could probably go on with examples of this. Discouragement is one of our most deadly temptations. Discouragement erodes our desire to even fight the battle. Discouragement, frankly, can ruin our lives if we let it. So our hope and prayer this evening, let's always be on guard. And let's realize that the great resource that we have, and the only resource that we have ultimately in those times, not rely on ourselves. Lean on the Lord. Look to Him. Draw from His strength and power. We're never so weak as when we trust entirely in our own strength. How can we sing in a foreign land? That's what we began with this evening. Think about this. That was from the 137th Psalm. In other words, that's from a song to God. How can we sing God's song in a foreign land? Well, we, we cry it out to Him. We sing to Him anyway. That's where we find that lament. So when things feel worst, when you're despairing, when you're discouraged, turn it over to the Lord. Lean on Him. And may we be able to say as Paul did, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. More than that, we can add what he does a few verses later in that same chapter. My God will supply every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're here this evening and you've become discouraged in living the Christian life. Maybe you've tried to rely on yourself instead of being fully and completely devoted to God as you ought. Or maybe there's some other sin that you're struggling with and you need to repent of that publicly. Whatever your particular situation may be, if we can help you in any way at all. It's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.